Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curd, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curd. Keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight, my panel. I've got the columnist for the Mail on Sunday, Peter Hitchens, and the author and academic, Frank Freddy. Helen uh, was one of my first emails tonight. She said, Dear Michelle, what fabulous guests you have this evening. So good to see both of them. Uh, she did also go on there and say, uh, they put many of your other guests to shame. I wasn't going to read that bit out. <laughs> I like all my guests. Yeah, I did in the end. I did I did contemplate there, Peter, for a couple of seconds. And then I thought, you know what? No, I'll just read the whole thing out. I love, I love all my guests. But uh, yes, looking forward to the conversation. Uh, tonight. Uh, you know the drill as well on Jubes & Co. It's not just about us here, it's about you at home as well. I always like to know what you think about the stories that we are covering. Get in touch with me, GB News. Uh, GB View, sorry, gbnews.uk is the email address. You can tweet me at GB News or at Michelle Jubes. I want to talk to you tonight about uh, crime in the UK. We lost control of the streets. Did we ever even have it, by the way? I want to ask about, uh, in the situation uh, in Russia uh, and Ukraine, the conflict there, should ordinary Russians be punished for the actions of their governments? I'm asking you that tonight. And should we have blasphemy laws in the UK? Lots of you have been in touch already. Uh, I'll start on the crime one because I'm going to lead with that story today. Jonathan has emailed in saying, Michelle, I've been a police officer for 25 years now on the front line. We have lost the streets. We have lost the support and confidence of the public. We have focused on work issues and not mainstream crime that people want us to tackle. This has occurred, he says, because we've had weak, ineffective police leadership, sycophants and non-operational officers managing from behind a desk. He goes on taking your time with this one, John. He says the criminal justice system is completely broken. We cannot repair it unless we have radical change. We've lost control, he says, again, of our streets. His colleagues are leaving in record numbers and he ends by saying, thank goodness, I will be leaving too in the next few years. That's John, uh, a serving police officer there uh, for nearly quarter of a century. The reason I read that one at first is because this is the story that I want to lead on. Uh, we've just been hearing in the news headlines, haven't we, about that awful situation, about the murder of a man that's almost 90 years old in a mobility scooter in London. Uh, police have revealed the image of the suspect wanted uh, for questioning. I've got to say, thank goodness, we debate often things like CCTV and doorbells and all the rest of it. Uh, people often uh, say we've got a bit of a big brother society, but when I see very clear imagery like that of someone that's wanted for questioning, I celebrate them, quite frankly. I think it's a good thing, these doorbells and CCTVs and all the rest of it. And I hope whoever knows this person comes forward. Um, appalling. I have to say, though, it's the sixth murder investigation launched in four days in London. Uh, it's not just in London, by the way, because I know many of you will be sitting there going, this is just a London thing. We've not lost control of the UK. It's just London. But actually, uh, there's been a rise in distribution of drugs uh, right across major cities, right through to rural areas. Um, and it's just, I'll get to the point, Frank Ferretti, I'll start with you. The state of Britain, it feels like, anyway, it feels like we have lost control when it comes to law and order. We need a sense of perspective because 
random crimes like the one we're discussing, the murder of this old gentleman, is fortunately still fairly rare. But I think you're right. There's something amiss. And worse still, we're very reluctant to openly discuss some of the real difficulties that we're facing. I think the first problem that we have is that community solidarity has broken down, so there is very little social restraint, particularly on young people in our societies. Kids you know, become a lot unto themselves because the adult world often gives up on disciplining them, and therefore they just basically very easily move into the domain of crime without blinking an eyelid. And then to make matters worse, we have a criminal justice system that really doesn't understand the meaning of justice and kind of struggles to understand what justice means so that the police are very often uh, wasting their time ticking boxes, sitting around. I remember going to a police station two years ago, and literally there were five or six coppers just kind of ticking boxes rather than being out on the street. And when I asked them, well, is this it's your life? And they said, well, this is process. This is something that we've got to do. But worse still, I think that there's a, a kind of acquiescence to the fact that certain crimes will not be investigated. Uh, we acquiesce to the fact that certain parts of London and other parts of the country are, in effect, no-go areas where the police very rare, rarely wander in there. And certain communities, in particular, and certain parts of London are, are very much at high risk uh, in terms of uh, the commitment of crime. So one of the things that I would like us to see is to have a grown-up discussion about what is this situation that we're faced with, because it's not good enough to talk about the breakdown of law and order. Uh, I think we've got to investigate a little bit further and name names and, 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 and isolate the problem. Yeah, and I just want to, just before I bring uh, Peter Hitchens in, because whilst it's, it's this particular crime that stopped me in my tracks today, let's be absolutely clear, uh, this is just one of many things that's going on at the moment that makes me very much concerned. Uh, I mean, I don't know if TikTok is your thing. Got to be honest, it's not quite mine. But I do use um, social media nonetheless, so I see a lot of things. This is one of the things that caught my eye. If I can get this clip running today... Um, yeah, I mean, I'm showing because I know that some of you are, are listening, not watching. This is, I've got to be honest, what I can only describe as lawless Britain in action. You've got a collection of uh, young people, I guess. Uh, they're just kind of running amok on the streets. Again, you guessed it, London. Uh, they're diving into like a, a sweet shop filling their pockets uh, to their heart's content, uh, and out they go again, absolutely not paying for a thing. Sadiq Khan uh, issued a statement saying, I'm concerned about a potential increase in violence this summer. As the cost of living crisis deepens and threatens to re reverse the progress, I know, we have made in tackling violent crimes. I mean, I did, I, I laughed a little bit when I read that, Peter Hitchens, because... I can almost see it coming, this kind of, oh, it's not my fault, it's not the police's fault, it's a cost of living crisis. I mean, shut up. <laughs> well, what do you think? Well, it's, uh, it's unlikely that people are going to rush in and steal sweets from a sweet shop because the cost of living has risen. It's also remarkable when so many of these supposed riots happen that the, the buildings that get targeted are so often selling high-end electronic goods, uh, which are obviously a, an important need that is unf mm. unfulfilled in the lives of these people, but you can hardly claim it was a a real piece of serious social deprivation. Uh, during the last supposed riots in London, I can't remember how long ago they were now, I pointed out that this was basically an outbreak of, of, of crime. It wasn't, it wasn't riots at all. It was people realizing there was the, the streets were unpoliced. 
and property. You know about when it was Mark Duggan, the killing of Mark Duggan. Property was unprotected. Uh, and and it wasn't, say, there was no social process. It was simply a, a realization by the by the lawless that they could get away with anything. Fortunately, they haven't yet realized just how few defenses there are. I many years ago, I've been you know, working for newspapers. You see the same stories coming round over and over again: the horrible murder of an old man, the increased uh, in, instance of drug abuse, whatever it may be. And I thought, well, there's no point just writing this over and over again and, and, and writing a column saying how terrible it is. I will look into what's actually happened. And I spent a couple of years researching and writing a book called The Brief History of Crime, in which I discovered in detail what had happened to the police, uh, what had happened to the courts, uh, what had happened to criminal justice in general, and what had happened to the prisons. And I tried to press this book, uh, sometimes directly into the hands of senior police officers and politicians say, please, will you read this? Because everything you say about more bobbies on the beat and crackdowns on crime is empty rubbish. It has no bearing on what's going on. You're paying no attention to the real problem. And I've never got any response at all. There is no interest in most of the media. There's no interest in the world of politics. There's almost total ignorance. You hear it. I'll be listening to some politician of, of, of any of the parties. What we need is more bobbies on the beat. And the moment this person says this, you know that he doesn't know or she doesn't know anything. There hasn't been such a thing as a bobby for about 50 years, and there is no beat for them to go on. The police do not patrol on foot preventively, which is their job. They stop doing it. Uh, What we have are paramilitary social workers, heavily armed with clubs and pepper sprays and sometimes guns, reacting to crime and disorder after it has happened uselessly. They've been doing this uselessly and with increasing ineffectiveness now for coming up for half a century. Nobody will reform it. I can say this over and over again. I can say it here. I can say it to you. I can say it when I meet politicians. I can say it to other journalists. Nobody pays the slightest bit of attention. There is no interest in this country in serious political discussion of major issues such as this. So it goes on getting worse. Same with drugs. You would find probably that drug abuse lies behind an enormous number of the crimes which you report and grieve over. But nobody will do anything about it. There is absolutely no intention to reduce the use of drugs. It's very easily done. They do it in Japan. They prosecute people for possession of drugs. And so there's much less possession of drugs and much less use of them. We will not do that here. We dismiss it as a policy from the outset. And if you say it, people attack you as a mad prohibitionist. There is no, no appetite in this country for serious discussion about this or any other problem. And it's, it's extraordinary uh, how long we've continued down this slope of idiotic non-government by people who don't know and don't care about their own country. Frank? Yeah, well, I mean, that ship has sailed uh, as far as drugs are concerned because, unfortunately, they become totally normalized. And they become normalized not just amongst uh, uh, sort of people who live in underprivileged circumstances, but also within the middle classes and also amongst our elites where the use of drugs is seen as just cool, just a normal thing you do. But I think the real problem... Well, hang on a second. Drunk, drunken driving was normal and normalized in this country in the, yeah. in the middle 1960s. And a serious effort was made to stamp it out with the breathalyzer. And it was very... It's coming back again now because the police have abandoned, uh, abandoned traffic patrols more or less totally. But in the, in the years after the introduction of the breathalyzer in 67, proper serious prosecution and pursuit of a dangerous crime, it was reduced. Yeah, you can't do it. You mustn't give in and say it's been normalized. Well, it's been normalized. It's a fact of life. You can denormalize it. Well, you can denormalize it, but the trouble that we face is that it's precisely the people who are making decisions about criminal justice who actually believe that, that drugs are not a big problem. 
or they think that it's an overstated problem. Yes, but, therefore, but Frank, there is much in what you say, but here is the problem. There, is, there are many, many people who will be listening to what I say saying this is true. The police officer who you quoted from, from the start more or less, I think, probably agrees with me on most issues. There are probably millions of people who feel this way. They have no access to politics because in this country we keep on and on uh, maintaining an existence to corpse political parties which represent nobody but themselves, only survive on the basis of state aid and, 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 and billionaire contributions. And what we need in this country is, is serious new politics in which these things are yeah, but, actually discussed. Yeah, if we yeah, don't but, do that, if we don't do that very soon, then these crises will become insuperable. But, but it is possible but, but, that we but, might but do it. The political situation obviously is at, at the roots of this, but we, we can't really put everything in the pot and, 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 and try to kind of stir it and come up with a solution. So the problem that pot. we have is that the police at the moment in relation to crime is not only not proactive, it's actually passive. So for example, the rise that was discussed earlier on was very interesting, was that when you saw the rioters in Wood Green and elsewhere, there was no police at all. I mean, the police basically withdrew and, and allowed the rioters to get on with, with, with things. And there's a kind of uh, tacit uh, uh, complicity on the part of law and, you know, people involved in law and order not to maintain the order when push comes to shove. And it seems to me that what we have is a very cowardly, risk-averse police force uh, that's being educated and socialized into passivity and to avoiding the making of difficult decisions. And we've seen this in a number of different circumstances. And it seems to me that we have, we've got to get back to the beginning and ask the question, how do we create a, a police force and a system of justice that is much more robust and is much more committed to tackling crime and is much more committed to the communities that they serve rather than uh, uh, just being narrow professional in the they work. to return to the idea that people are responsible for their own actions. If you have the mayor of London uh, saying that social conditions are responsible for crime, then you, you immediately have people in important positions encouraging the idea that there is an excuse in this incredibly rich society for people to go out and, and rob their neighbours. There is no excuse for... Yeah, I mean, obviously it's observed that Any poverty excuses. is linked to crime. I mean, the, we know, for example, that during the Depression... In the 1930s, when there was mass unemployment, people didn't say, oh, I'm unemployed, therefore I'm going to rob somebody. Absolutely not. That's not how people are. Crime is quite distinct and is driven by motives and, and aspirations that are quite separate from economic uh, conditions. And I think what's really dangerous, what Sadiq Khan is really doing, is he's creating a situation where the normalization of crime becomes institutionalized, where in a, in a few years' time, the police will only be tackling certain kinds of crimes, the ones that are relatively easy to kind of solve, rather than the ones that people on the streets uh, com are confronted with. say in a few with. years' time, I would say that that happened some time ago. Well, yeah, he says some time ago, David just emailed and said, Michelle, are you asking, is Britain out of control? He says, put simply, yes, and it has been since the 90s. Uh, lots of people, I mean, Juliet's saying, this all makes me wonder why underage boys in the First World War volunteered to give up their lives for this country. Uh, it makes me... Uh, despair. She says it, she thinks it was all a waste of decent lives and it makes me, she says, glad that I am 82 years of age. How sad. Uh, Bernard says the youth of today are proving they do not respect age. More and more pensioners are getting uh, assaulted. The punishments uh, when people do go to court don't seem to be a deterrent and around and around we go. Um, 
get in touch with me. What do you think to that topic? And what do you think about the police? Are you a serving policeman? I mean, or a police person, woman, whatever the terminology is these days, I don't know. Uh, are you in the police force? Uh, what do you think to what you're hearing? Do you think that you um, are able to do your job effectively? Do you, I don't know, get bogged down with too much paperwork and all the rest of it? Get in touch. Let me know your thoughts. Chibiviews at gbnews.uk is my email address. Hello there, welcome back to Jubes & Co with me, Michelle Jubri, keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight. The panel that have been described by Peter as the A-team. The A-team, <laughs> there you go. Uh, who am I referring to if you just joined me? Well, the columnist for the Mail on Sunday, Peter Hitchens, and the author and the academic, Frank Freddy. Um, I've got to say, in short, many of you are in contact about that last conversation, which is, um, I was asking you, do you think Britain is pretty much lawless at the moment? Uh, most of you, in summary, think that, yes, it feels like it is. You can keep your thoughts coming on that. Uh, Bob says the police force and the police policies in this country are totally shot. Why do we have to keep paying our police for this level of service? And this is what I was asking. Uh, are any of you out there serving police officers? What do you think to some of the criticism that comes your way? Is it fair or not? You tell me. Right, let's move on, shall we? New sanctions against Russian citizens are planned by the EU. Uh, politicians are debating a ban on tourist visas for the Russians. This is, of course, amid the Ukraine war. Ten EU countries, uh, including Belgium, Czech Republic, Latvia and Spain, have already suspended or restricted uh, visas to Russian citizens. Hmm. Where do you stand on this? I'll start with you, Peter Hitchens. Do you think uh, your order, ordinary uh, Joe public should be held responsible for the actions of their government in this way? It's grotesque xenophobia, and I'm, I'm shocked that President Zelensky, the Ukrainian leader, has been promoting this idea. The, the idea that every Russian supports the, the, the Russian state and the lawless and, and unforgivable invasion of Ukraine is simply false. The other thing is, I, I lived in the Soviet Union before it became Russia, and when it was very difficult for Russians to travel abroad, it was it, it, only the privileged nomenclatura class could generally leave the country at all, let alone with their families. And suddenly, one of the great liberties which came with the collapse of communism was this freedom to travel. And the influence this had on Russians, those who were able to do it, and many, many of them were, was huge. They saw, for the first time, other free societies, how they operated, how people lived things they'd never really been allowed to see or experience before. And it had a great impact on them. I would think probably the Russians who travel are the ones who are least likely to be slavish supporters of the regime. And in any case, collective punishment of an entire nation, forcing them to stay within their borders, is, it's, it's a disgraceful form of behavior. It's, it's outlawed under the Geneva Convention in, 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 in some circumstances. And in general, it's a very poor principle to work on. I mean, you possibly you remember you went to the sort of school where if somebody did something wrong, everybody was kept in and threatened until one person confessed. It's, it is a completely unjust way of treating people. And it, it's part of this strange, Ukraine is a sainted, wonderful nation of people who never do anything wrong and everything's perfect there. And Russia is Mordor and everybody is an orc and they're all evil and, 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 and deserve to be punished. This is rubbish. The world is not like this. All countries contain good and bad people. And to punish people for things which they have had absolutely no part in bringing about is stupid and wrong and counterproductive and will make it far, far harder when we eventually have to have peace, which we will, and sooner the better in my view, uh, far, far harder to obtain it. And it will make the peace 
a less satisfactory one when it comes. I think it's quite wrong. I think people should be much more noisily against it than they are. People who in this country have their faces correctly set against xenophobia of all kinds are missing this uh, instance of it and should be speaking out against it. You mentioned Zelensky. Zelensky actually said in an interview with the Washington Post that, I quote, the most important sanction that the EU could impose on Russia was to close the borders because, he says, the Russians are taking away someone else's land. He added that Russians should live in their own world until they change their philosophy. Uh, in Latvia, by the way, not only do they have uh, an interview uh, when you're trying to get in, but you're expected to sign a document now saying that you uh, oppose the, the situation in Ukraine. Where do you stand on it all, Frank? Well, I mean, Latvia is a, an extreme case of uh, oppressive behaviour towards the Russian minority there. Because one of the things they're doing is they're basically threatening to take away their passports and their basic uh, legal rights unless they make a declaration about supporting uh, the Latvian government and, and distancing themselves from, from, the, from Russia. And I think that kind of uh, almost uh, authoritarian behavior is fast becoming a norm in many of the states in the, in the Baltic areas. And I, I support Ukraine unambiguously, but I do think that there is something wrong. It, it's against natural justice to punish ordinary Russian people for the actions of their government. And not only is it, uh, is it wrong, morally wrong, but it's also counterproductive because Russian people, Russian tourists, when they come to England or they come to Germany, they begin to talk to us, they begin to have a greater clarity about the situation. And I think that kind of dialogue that occurs in the course of, of tourism can only help resolve matters in the long run because sooner or later this war will have to come to an end. And we don't want to create a situation where ordinary Russian people are made to feel like some kind of enemy, as if they're like the 21st century equivalent of the Nazis in the past. So I do think that we need to take a step back and uh, realize that we're not going to improve matters by becoming so hysterical that we lose sight of the fact that ordinary people have got to be treated as just that ordinary people. And we have to somehow find a way of, of fighting uh, for, this, for, the, for the right of Ukraine to be independent and for their self-determination in a much more civilized way. Peter? Well, there's a growing tendency in, in the treatment of foreign conflicts in what we could loosely call the West of making out that one side is wholly bad and the other side is wholly good, which I think makes it almost impossible in a democratic state for people to develop a sensible view of what should be done. This happened also in Yugoslavia. Uh, as the, the Serbs undoubtedly did some terrible things as Yugoslavia was breaking up, but so did, uh, so did the Croats. Uh, but it was all concentrated on the Serbs, and the whole thing was, was everything, all foreign policy, all discussion was based on the, the wickedness of the Serbs and the resulting non-settlement, which still exists in Yugoslavia, it could blow up at pretty much at any minute, was the result of this, this silly, childish view of everyone on one side is good, everyone on the other side is bad. In the Ukrainian issue, it simply is not true that the matter is as simple as that. And the, the, the idea that it is, is prolonging the war, making it harder to find, uh, to find a peaceful solution, and therefore leading to more deaths, more people being driven from their homes, more extended misery, and more economic disaster. We're in a very bad economic position anyway, thanks to the panic over COVID, where Rishi Sunak uh, basically busted the economy uh, in, in, in a total overreaction 
uh, to a disease. And now we're doubling the damage by entering this and pursuing and perpetuating uh, this conflict, which ought to be brought to an end, and which under normal circumstances, civilized nations would be seeking to bring to an end. But if you constantly say, this enemy is so terrible that we can't even let his citizens travel out of his country, how are you going to get peace? Well, I mean, the situation is, is never black and white, as Peter suggests. And it's not the case that on the one side you have angels and on the other side you've got the devil. But we do have to make a judgment call. And the judgment call that I would make is that on balance, Russia is the guilty party here, and uh, Ukraine needs to be defended because their right as a nation is at issue here. And the issue for us now is that given the fact that this terrible war has been going on for months and months and months, how can we, what, what can we do to, to find some kind of resolution or at least to contribute to some kind of resolution to this problem? And uh, it seems to me that the, 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 the challenge that, that we face at the moment is, is if we don't want to create what, what began as a war between Ukraine and Russia initially into a proxy war, whereby people just end up ganging up on Russia because it, it's now very, very convenient. And, and all the while... Frank, the, co the coverage of this is, is cartoonish. I mean, for instance, there's, there's this very strange uh, problem going on over the Zaporizhia nuclear power station, in which an awful lot of Western coverage is saying, well, it's absolutely terrible, this power station is being shelled. Well, the, the fact is the power station is under the control of the Russians. They, they took it in February and they're, they're hunkered down in it. So who's shelling it? Uh, is it the Eskimos who are shelling it? Uh, is it the North Koreans who are shelling it? I don't think so. But nobody will even say uh, that the Ukrainians are shelling it because shelling a nuclear power station is obviously, whatever you think about the issue, it's always a stupid thing to do. But nobody will say that the Ukrainians are shelling it. But why? But being why do you think that is? Because there is absolutely no ability among most of the people writing about this to see that there is any, there is any complexity in the in, in the conflict at all, the Ukraine it's it's Gandalf versus the Orcs. The Ukrainians are wholly good in white shining armor, and the Ukra and the Russians are wholly wrong. And that the, the, and, and having once reached that stage, you can't even think about the subject. Anymore. But I mean, the, the real problem that we have is that there was provocation. There's a war there of provocation. There's a war of propaganda no going on, where uh, essentially it's very difficult to know what is true and what isn't true. And that goes for both sides, because in, in any war, you're trying to you know, demoralize your enemy and you're trying to get the maximum support for yourself. And what I, I mean, I've been to the, when I went to the Ukraine in March uh, to kind of find out for myself what was really going on, one of the things that really surprised me is that the Ukraine that I saw and the way that people experienced the war was obviously very different than if you just merely watch television. And that's the case in all kinds of wars. And I think... What that means is that we have to take a step back and really critically assess every bit of information that we, we get at the moment and try to kind of work out for ourselves what is true and what isn't. And that's going to be very, very difficult because so many people are involved in creating the wrong, an image that they want to, want to present to us. And but, but again, if we, the, the main, a huge part, part of the animus against the Russians, quite correctly, is against the increasingly dictatorial nature of their government. And yet you've just described the, the Latvian state behaving in a way demanding signed loyalty declarations from citizens, which any of us under normal circumstances would look at with horror. And imagine our own government coming and demanding signed declarations of loyalty. It's a complete, uh, it's a complete breach of, uh, of, of any sort of freedom at all. And yet the, this is supposed to be a democratic NATO ally. Why aren't we more worried about this? this, this because one of the directions in which this kind of thing leads 
is towards a totalitarian mindset and indeed a totalitarian society brought in with popular support. But then at the end of the day, we still, I mean, I think you're right. We do need to be questioning what's happening in Latvia and, and also some other places. But somehow we're going to do it in such a way that we defend Ukraine as, 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 a, as the party that's been attacked, that, that whatever, there's a, whatever problems exist with Ukraine, they need our support. And we've got to find a, a way that to ensure that they get, they get durable peace and durable security guarantees so that they can maintain themselves as an independent nation. I think that seems to me to be the there number one priority. There was a huge search for those guarantees before this war began and the Minsk II agreement was reached, which the, the major Western powers made no effort whatsoever to enforce. And if, we, if we're going to go into this, this is, again, this is much more, much more complicated than, than, it's, than it's being portrayed as. There was, the, the war began not in, in 2022, but in 2014. Uh, and the, uh, has been raging in the in the Don Basin ever since then, and it's not it's it, it's not as simple as the the, the Russians invaded in 2022. That's it, and it, it, but I, I never if if I try and make these points, I find not that I I get which I do I, I find I get more and more isolated as the thing goes on because the 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 public mindset is more and more totalitarian. Almost everything anybody hears is all one sided. And all without without real consideration of the facts, and also actually fantastically, profoundly ignorant. But I mean, the circumstances. people are, are are relatively open-minded about being convinced. I think you make an important point, which is that the West was not particularly a, a sort of had empathy for the security needs of Russia earlier on, and they kind of ignored some of the concerns that Russia had. I think that's without a doubt the case. The problem is, is that. That doesn't excuse Russia's invasion no, of Ukraine. No, it doesn't Ukraine. excuse it. it no, so now we're, now, no but now we're dealing with, the, it. It, with an event rather, rather than what happened in the past. We deal, we've got a situation at hand, which is for the, for the first time uh, since the war in Yugoslavia, we've got a major war on the European continent, and it's a war that could easily spread elsewhere. That's what I really worry about, uh, that, sure. that, that this war isn't going to necessarily stop in Ukraine, but can easily spread so to the Baltic states. So, so, so everybody should be saying, well, now where is the United Nations? Where, is the, yeah. where are the peace talks? Why isn't well, anybody trying I, to I would not count on the United with, Nations with very much. So big that nobody was trying to end before. Yeah. And that is the million dollar question, isn't it? Uh, where are the peace talks? Where are the, the policies, the strategy, the, the people yelling from the rooftops that what we need uh, in this situation is an end? You tell me. That one has divided opinions, by the way. Uh, looking at your comments as they're coming through, lots of people uh, agreeing with some of the things they're hearing, disagreeing with some of the things they're hearing. A lot of, yeah, this is exactly, this is what I want. I think that it's not, uh, it's never a good thing, is it, to have every single person in agreement. One of the problems in uh, society at the moment is people don't have the ability to debate anymore. <laughs> Hello there, welcome uh, back to Jubes & Co. With me, Michelle Jubry, keeping me company till 7 o'clock tonight. My panel, uh, we have the columnist of the Mail on Sunday, Peter Hitchens, and author and academic Frank Ferredi. Uh Susan said, I am so angry with your guest views. I have followed the Russian uh, war in Ukraine closely since February the 24th. The proposed visa ban is making ordinary Russians care now about the, way, the war in a way that they have not until now. The atrocities uh, being carried out by Russians on Ukrainians are horrific beyond belief. We must do everything that we can to help Ukraine defeat Russia. She says, my Ukrainian guests are now here safely in my home. 
Lots of people very, very happy indeed that we are having the conversation, though, I have to say, about um, the Ukraine and Russian conflict, uh, war, whatever you choose uh, to call it. It does divide opinion, though, and, you know, it is, for me, a topic that we absolutely should discuss and continue to discuss it. We shall. Right, let's move on, shall we? Uh, you know, we're all familiar now with what happened, the appalling attack on Salman Rushdie uh, a few days ago in New York. Uh, there's an event happening very soon uh, over in New York where writers will come together, read some of his passages out in solidarity, uh, in a pushback uh, against some uh, censorship, etc., etc. I was going to read out, Frank, a whole long thing, but I just want to get to the point. Um, should we be able to criticise religion freely? criticize religion? Well, you know, uh, free speech was born in reaction to uh, blasphemy laws. When you look at the very concept of tolerance when it emerged, it emerged precisely because uh, people began to understand that it was important that people could, should be able to act in accordance or at least think in accordance with their belief and should have the right to begin to question uh, blasphemy, uh, a, a religion. And the problem that we have as I see it, is that not only are we not allowed to criticize religion, and, and people seem to think that somehow that there's a line that you mustn't cross because of people's sensitivities, but we actually have uh, blasphemy laws uh, in a new form. And the new form of blasphemy laws that we have in the 21st century are laws to do with hate speech. So when you examine the way that hate speech is constructed as a crime and as a problem, it's actually anal analogous to the way in which old-fashioned heresy and blasphemy was perceived in the religious days. It's a kind of quasi-religious way of censoring the way we, we kind of operate. And it seems to me that unless we are free to express ourselves in relation to ideologies and in relation to religions, then free speech means nothing. There's, you know, free speech only comes into its own when it's able to question um, unpopular views when it's, uh, and put forward unpopular views. Free speech only comes into being when it's able to offend people. Because as you know, there's never been a good idea that's ever been created by human beings in history that hasn't offended somebody. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been a good idea. And, and, and if we are going to have blasphemy laws, then what we're doing is we're undermining the intellectual and moral foundation on which a free society is built. And we have to remember one thing all the time which is that free speech is a foundational freedom. Without free speech, none of our freedoms means anything because unless we can voice, give voice to our concerns, our freedom are, is going to be lost. Peter? Well, this is interesting, a point that Frank uh, got halfway to making. The real religions which exist in the Western world today are those of man-made global warming and equality and diversity. And heresy against either of those is increasingly difficult to express and in many cases is, is punished by uh, people losing their employment, uh, which is the, the means of repression uh, most effective probably in, in the world. It's much because no one really gets worked up about people losing their jobs. They get worked up about people being imprisoned or, or murdered for their opinions. But if they just lose their jobs, it's, Amnesty International isn't going to intervene. The European Court of Human Rights isn't going to intervene either. People are just put under pressure to shut up. So there is a fair amount of, of, of heresy hunting going on already. In terms of religion, I, I am a Christian believer, and you can actually say anything you like about my religion, and what and I am enjoined by this by the scriptures uh, not to hit you. 
if you do that, I'm told, I'm told to expect uh, to, to be reviled uh, for my beliefs. And I'm also told to turn the other cheek when attacked. And I have to say that turning the other cheek is of no value unless you have an alternative. But I won't attack you uh, if you attack my religion because I don't think that it would be, I think it would be wrong and it would be stupid. You can say what you like. On the other hand, if you want to have a debate about my religion, you'll get much further if you debate it rationally rather than by insulting me. Can I just cut to the chase? Um, it does feel to me a little bit like you're saying you can criticise my religion. Da, da, da. Yeah. There does seem to be a challenge, though, doesn't there? Let's be completely frank about this. That if uh, you dare to criticise Islam, there will be many people uh, that absolutely, completely do not think it is tolerable in any way, shape or form and will feel vindicated in uh, performing violence against you as a result. What do we think to this? Well, we have to fight it. We have to make sure that that kind of intolerance and the weaponization of a particular religion is not allowed to prevail. I think a lot of people have internalized this and in a very cowardly way are scared to, to actually criticize Islamism. I mean, you know, there's an example of the poor teacher from Batley who was teaching the children uh, about, about Mohammed and, and drawing a cartoon about Mohammed. He's in hiding for a year, and he's in the same kind of predicament as Salman Rushdie is. And instead of society watching his back and really protecting him and allowing him to live a full life, we kind of, uh, kind of, kind of, almost kind of sweep, sweep to the side. That kind of, we don't want to talk about that this poor guy because it raises all the important issues that in our society there are people that are prepared to commit crimes and and terrorize people just simply because they've criticized or questioned their religion. And that seems to me to be intolerable. And that's going to be said loud and clear. It, 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 you cannot have a democratic society if one group takes upon itself to have a monopoly uh, or saying that my way of life, my religion, is beyond discussion, beyond criticism. No, but the, the reaction of the British state to the, 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 the call for the murder of Salman Rushdie uh, was to protect him. This was a man who'd been extraordinarily critical of, of uh, Mrs. Thatcher herself. I think he described her as Madame Torture in one of his books, uh, which was uh, not, not the kind of thing which most people take kindly to. She, nonetheless, the moments, as far as I recall, uh, the fact that I was issued, ordered that he be protected with the full resources of the British state. I think that was absolutely and completely the right thing to do. Uh, likewise, I think we can pretty much be sure that if anybody had attempted to attack him on British soil, uh, then that person would have been subject to the full rigor of the law. There are limits on what a state can do about these things, but I think that actually the performance of uh, of, of this country in that matter is, is not entirely to be sneezed at. I don't know. I, I think you're right in that instance. I, I was very unhappy the way that the situation in Batley was handled by the police and the way in which the situation was created, the impression was created that somehow this teacher was equally guilty as the protesters against him, the kind of somehow that you know, uh, sort of plague on, bo uh, on both sides. But you know, Peter, uh, just because we, we kind of dealt properly with, with Salim Rushdie, we shouldn't forget the fact that a lot of people in high places kind of were wishing that Salim Rushdie did not exist. And I always recall and remember that when Salim Rushdie was knighted, Shirley Williams, who was a prominent labor politician, basically said on TV that somehow this shouldn't be done because it, it kind of uh, is an insult. Spending all this money and giving all, all this honor to Saldam Rushdie 
was sending a negative signal. Well, I think I was there when she said it. She didn't say quite that, but I mean, it, it, she, it, it's not necessarily a point of view with, with which I would agree or, with, or which I would wish to express that she was entitled to say it. I mean, the, 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 the fact still remains that, as I say, the, the, the attitude of this country was to protect someone Russia with all the resources at its command, and quite right too. I don't know what else exactly people propose that, that, uh, that we should or could do in such matters, but this is important. And here we were, a, a, a country faced with a horrible thing, and we, 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 we responded. As I say, I think that if, if people kill uh, people for expressing their views, then the full rigor of the law needs to be applied to punish them for doing any such thing. Well, we can that, begin that. That needs to be absolutely clear. We can begin by educating our children. Well, that would be a good start right, as well, wouldn't it? It's perfectly yes, but... all right to question everything, and it's perfectly all right for you and anybody else to have discussions about any religion. That's part of our culture. That's the, Instead of having uh, re religious education lessons that avoid these kinds of difficult questions, I think we need to make yes, but, but... our young people stronger and more willing to discuss and debate these kinds of controversial issues. In my university, people are wary uh, this is in, in a university situation, are wary of openly discussing uh, Islamic-related uh, topics. Uh, Jihadist-related issues are, are, are almost forbidden. And you almost imagine that they've created a metaphorical trigger warning against any issues like that. And I think that when you have that kind of cowardly culture mm. institutionalized, we do have a very big problem. And I barely even remember, by the way, bringing it back to Batley, where were the teachers' unions? They can't help themselves at the moment, can they? Whether it's uh, paying conditions when it was COVID, the threats from that. Uh, I don't remember them being very vocal at all uh, when it came to the situation in Batley with that teacher. Maybe I missed that, but I doubt it. Uh, you tell me your thoughts on all of that. I was asking, do you think we should have blasphemy laws in this country? The short answer from pretty much everyone that's emailed in is a big fat no to that. We must have freedom of speech. People must be able to... Uh, discuss pretty much whatever they want. I mean, we should all be free to discuss anything uh, as respectfully, uh, uh, well, absolutely with respect. That's one thing, as, as I said earlier on in this programme, that is missing from society, if you ask me. We need more respectful conversation, not less. On that thought, I shall leave you. Thank you to my panel. Thanks for listening to Jubes and Co, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time. <laughs>